The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'm excited to continue to uh, make our way through Romans uh, tonight, so let's open in prayer and then start in. Uh, Father, thank you for this beautiful day that we enjoyed today. Very warm, pleasant, um, good to see the flowers coming out. And uh, Lord, we just see your hand in nature. Everything that we see around us displays your glory in some way. Uh, but we especially see the clarity of your message of glory in the Word of God. And so thank you for the time tonight to study. Be with me as I lead and all of us as we think together. So we continue to walk through Romans uh, in chapter 6 on into chapter 7. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so your, the handout is a little different, and I keep making progress in it. So uh, if you got last week's handout, this is going to be similar but different, so you might want to grab it off the music stand there. Uh, we're making our way through Romans 6, and we'll get into Romans 7, God willing, tonight uh, on dealing with uh, the problem of indwelling sin. So I would love it if somebody could read the text for us tonight. We'll read all of Romans 6 and stop there, and then I'll have somebody read Romans 7 when we get to that point. So uh, let's have some two people read Romans 6, um, maybe up through verse, uh, um, let's see, a good stopping point, uh, verse um, 12, you know, 1 through 12, and somebody else 13 through 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Up through verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves as God, being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Yeah, could you read, I'm sorry, to the end of the chapter? Would you mind? Thank you. Appreciate it. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves who you obey, whether or not? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that you were slaves of sin, yet you obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now you present yourselves as slaves of righteousness for holiness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your your fruit to holiness and the end to everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. All right, fantastic. Um, we were. More or less, I think, around verse 19 last time, but let's back up. And uh, in your outline, I'm going to jump down to uh, the part that says and see 
<coughs> our obedience proves who our master is. So all of the other stuff we've gone over, and I want to make progress into chapter 7 tonight. So let's pick it up there. And I want to ju- uh, jump in um, right away, not in the outline. We'll go through it orderly. But verse 17 says something very powerful for our purpose tonight, our Bible study purpose tonight. My translation here says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Translation you just read said delivered, and that's good too. Um, And as I mentioned last time, the idea is this, that our souls were delivered over to a pattern of doctrine, a pattern of teaching for safekeeping. And that pattern of teaching is, broadly speaking, the gospel. Um, Romans, all 16 chapters, is the clearest, most systematic, most detailed explication of the gospel. The gospel is bigger than just the milk, the simple God-man-Christ response things, but all the comprehensive teaching of God's dealing with us in our sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification, and how the Word of God does all of that. So you're here tonight because the Holy Spirit led you here to continue to be ministered to by the gospel. You're not done with the gospel. The gospel is not done with you. And so you were entrusted to the gospel. You were entrusted, your soul was entrusted for safekeeping. I think in the outline here, I developed some of this. Um, Yeah, uh, uh, the comment on 617, I know I'm not going in order here, but I I like uh, what I was thinking about earlier. Um, I believe the gospel doctrine that Paul is unfolding here in Romans is the caretaker of our souls. It will feed us spiritual food. It will protect us from spiritual harm. It will give us spiritual guidance. If you look at those three functions, feeding, protecting, guiding, those are the roles of a parent. Those of you that have kids, you're like, yeah, that's what we do among other things, right? So the gospel is taking care of you. The gospel is your caretaker to feed, protect, and lead you. And that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? We have, we have a lot of feeding that we need from the Word of God. We need to be protected from spiritual harm, and we need to be guided. Now, the battle that we have with indwelling sin is very dangerous, and the gospel is the only thing that can protect us. Indwelling sin is deadly. It's very, very dangerous. And so, therefore, it's important for us to understand this battle. So, I just dumped into verse 17 because I want you to see the benefit of a Bible study like this. Now, going back to verse 15, Paul uh, has brought up, he's made this assertion, we're not under law but under grace. And then he goes back to the same question he started with in verse 1. Shall we go on sinning for that reason? Shall we go on sinning because of justification by faith alone? No. Shall we go on sinning because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? No. Shall we go on sinning because we're not under law but under grace? No, no, no. We shall not go on sinning. Sin is a deadly poison. It's dangerous. So, but that's what we do. We, we, we tend to think, well, this uh, loosens up some of the regulations. It loosens up so that we can um, you know, do what we want, which is sin. So as we mentioned last time, uh, Paul says we're not under law but under grace. We talked about this last time, but it's important. What does it mean that we're not under law but under grace? Yeah, certainly. The New Covenant. Tell me more, Stephanie, about that, being in the New Covenant. Um, well, Jesus' blood shed on a cross delivers us from God's wrath uh, mm-hmm. on our sins. Okay. And it frees us from um, bondage to the law. Right. The Old Covenant said, do this and you'll live. The man who does these things will live by them. Uh, but uh, grace says that this man, Christ, has done all of this already and is giving it to us freely. It's done. It's a c- completed. Uh, so that's one part of it, but there's more. Uh, what else does it mean that we're not under law but under grace? We've heard an illustration, kind of a, a wedding illustration or marriage illustration, where you were once, they were married to law, mm-hmm. which was an abusive husband, that you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, and you never, ever get it right. And then that um, 
and your husband comes along and that one dies and you're now married to Christ through grace and the law, as it said, the law and the prophets, none of that is gone. Mm-hmm. But now we have a husband who walks with us through the Holy Spirit and says, yeah, I still want dinner at 6, but if you get it at 6.05, it's okay. We're going to work on it again tomorrow and we'll just continue to work on it until we get Right? Is that how that works? Is that how that works? <laughs> the expectations are still the same and they're still there, but he walks with us and nobody has access to the heart. Yeah, my pagination is different than you guys, but I don't know if you look ahead to the Romans 7 stuff in your outline tonight. So what page is the uh, Romans 7, dead to the law, fruitful for God? Page 7. So look at that, um, and you will see the marriage analogy. Okay, you didn't, yeah, you didn't read ahead. Okay, no, it's okay if you did. Paul's the one that makes that analogy, uh, but it's not, he doesn't go so far as to say the law was an abusive husband. I wouldn't think he would do that. Um, you know, well. <laughs> all right, which will, God willing, be soon. Um, so let's, all right, not under law. Other aspects, as I mentioned last time, the law has the power to send us to hell. The law has the power to condemn us. When it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Anyone who is condemned is condemned justly and rightly by God. It is a just condemnation. Jesus uh, says, my judgment is just because I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And, And also Jesus judges because he judges according to the law. So the law has the power to condemn us to hell. So to be to be free from the law is to be free from the law and its condemning power. Uh, as Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14 says, the, uh, that Christ, by his death, took away the written code that stood against us, who was opposed to us. He, he, he nailed it to the cross. By his death on the cross, he satisfied its accusations. Uh, so that's what it means to not be under the law. Also, we have a sense that we have, by the new nature, by being made new creations in Christ, we, are, we have a higher motivation to do the perfect aspects of the law. They will never go away. They actually are eternal. Because all you have to do is look at the summary of the law that Jesus gave, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is eternal. You'll be doing it in heaven. But you won't have to be commanded in heaven. We have a higher nature now, a higher order, so that we're not forced or compelled to love God and love neighbor. We uh, are enabled to do it, so not under law. Also, it just, I think it just, it's a symbol of being in one dominion, dominion of darkness, sin, death, Satan, all that, or the dominion of God, Christ, righteousness, grace, two different kingdoms, two different ways to live. All right? Now, Paul's point here is, in this section, who you obey proves who your master is. The one you obey, that one is your master. All right? Now, the basic assumption, as we said last time, all human beings are slaves. All human beings serve a master. This, by the way, is the answer to the pressing question on, on chattel slavery, on the uh, history of Christianity with slavery, and all these kind of things. Why aren't there clear emancipatory verses even in the New Testament? Why doesn't Paul just command masters to set their slaves free? You know, and it's a complex question, but one of the reasons why is that this analogy, this concept of slavery, is one of the conceptions we should have of our relationship with God. The, the word doulos is a servant we, we like, or a slave, and it's in the last chapter of the Bible. It says in Revelation 22, in the new heaven, new earth, his servants will serve him. That's the sweet version. <laughs> His slaves will obey him, that kind of thing. Uh, It's right there at the end. But Jesus himself took on the word doulos. He became a servant of God. He is the suffering servant or slave of God. Uh, We were made to serve. The question is, who is your master? Not, am I a slave or not? You are, whether you know that you are or not. If you don't know, all of you who are Christians know that you are. But if you don't know, then you're just deceived in, into uh, a kind of autonomy and freedom and do whatever you want that is an illusion. It's a lie. It forgets that there is a king of the universe who rules everything and will have his will and have his way with us. We were created to serve him. The angels know that, the good angels, the holy angels, they serve him. And so we are fundamentally made to be served. But the question is, who is your master? So, Greg, were you going to say something? Okay. 
Do you think, uh, are there pros and cons? If you were translating, if you were on the translating committee, would you want to translate those passages as slave or servant? Well, CSB went that direction, but most, most go servants. Yeah, because I think it's just so, I think it's so poisoned by how bad the masters were, and they clearly violated New Testament principles, you know, because you're not even supposed to threaten your servant. So the connotations in the culture are not what's, yeah. what's in the word itself. Exactly. So, you know, you sometimes have to rescue a word a little bit, let it cool out a, a bit. But anyway, so, you know, and I think one of the meditations, I, what's the difference between a slave and, and an employee, okay? What is the difference? Voluntary. Voluntary. Meaning what? Well, I mean, you can quit. Yeah. You I mean, can. The scripture says it's a sin to be a man stealer or a kidnapper. Right, right. You can't have child slavery unless you kidnap somebody. Right. Against their will. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, you can quit. Here's the thing. Kingdom of heaven, can we quit? Can you walk away? Well, you didn't walk away too. But what you would say is we don't want to. Because we're not just slaves. We're also sons and daughters. And we're also bride where he's bridegroom. So it isn't just one metaphor. There's, there's different aspects. But no, you can't walk away. Um, he is, uh, so the, the analogy here is clear, though. We are slaves. The question is, who's your master? And you're looking at two different masters, a wicked, oppressive, tyrannical master, which is sin uh, or Satan, and a good, loving, just, righteous master, who is Jesus, who says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The yoke means, let me be your master, let me be your king. You'll find my yoke is easy and my burden is light. None of my commands are oppressive. His commands, as John says, are not burdensome. They're not bad commands, they're good commands. Anyway, so who you serve, that proves your master. And then in verse 16, Paul gives uh, two options. You're either, one, slaves to sin, which leads to death, and the word death we should think of as an experience now, a spiritual way of living now, being living dead, such as in Ephesians 2, but also ultimate death, the second death, which is hell. So if you are a slave to sin, it leads to death in every respect, in all of that. Or you could be slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now that's an interesting phrase or concept. What does it mean to be a slave to obedience? Or more simply, to obey obedience. What does that even mean, to be a slave to obedience? You can't help but obey. Okay. It seems redundant a little bit, but this is the ver verbiage that Paul's given us here. You're either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Any other thoughts on this idea of being a slave to obedience? <clears throat> I know in another place, Paul uses the phrase obedient from the heart. It's, it's a desire from that you heart. want to. So. Absolutely. From the heart. A desire from the heart. JD? I was just thinking of your infinite journey, mm -hmm. the idea of habitual obedience. Okay. Fundamental obedience. The, yeah, that would unpack some of that habitual obedience. I mean, that's... Yeah. I, and the ultimate... I'm sorry? Yeah, it seems to me like he's using Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, doesn't it say in Revelation 19, Jesus' name is truth? I think it does. Whose name is truth? He is King of kings, Lord of lords, he rises, and his name is truth. He is the word of God. I think you could do the same with any one of a number of attributes concerning Jesus, but you could also say his name is obedience. He was, he was obedience incarnate. You know, it says in one scripture, here am I, it is written about me in your scroll, I d delight to do your will, O God. That's in the Psalms, Jesus lived that out. It's his food. It was his food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He, he said, I brought you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. It already said this in John, uh, sorry, Romans 5, he said, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. So he's already brought up this massive issue of disobedience versus obedience. The disobedience was Adam's. Look what it did. 
the obedience was Jesus. That's how we were made righteous. But made righteous into what? Into a life of obedience, just like Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Or why do you call me Lord and do not obey what I command? There are many such statements. So fundamentally, our conception of the kingdom of heaven is that we have entered into it to obey, to obey his commands. And that's, that's what I think it means here, to obey obedience or to be a slave to obedience. So how does that help us in our battle with sin? How does that help us in sanctification, to con consider yourself a slave to obedience? I think it puts you on a trajectory. You know, so if you're habitually sinning, mm -hmm. you're in a certain trajectory. And if you're habitually obeying, you're on a different trajectory. And I think... You know, the more we obey, the easier it is. And I'm not saying it's always easy, but I'm just saying there there becomes a... Um, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, predisposition may be a good word. Um, toward obedience. Yeah, so would you say that for us as Christians, one of the fun... I'm sorry. What, what did she say? Okay. <laughs> I still haven't found the sermon writing app yet where you write sermon, boom, boom, you know. It's getting closer, though. It's getting scary close. Um, no, all right. I would say a fundamental moment, fundamental moment in our lives, daily lives as Christians, is presenting yourself to God to obey him today. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's what you're told to do. We're told to present ourselves and say, what you tell me to do, I will do today. Would you say every good thing, every good work that we do that is pleasing to God, he commanded you to do it first and you're just obeying? I think you need to say yes. Other than that, there's some whole category of good works that he never thought of and you're able to freelance those things and he likes that too. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like, I think not. I think fundamentally he's already told you what to do. And so therefore, I couch the basic good works of the Christian life, as you said, as habitual obedience. You're just obeying, 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 obeying what he already told you to do. And that, by the way, shows how it's impossible to be justified by works. Because all that's happening there is you're finally obeying what you were told to do. There's no extra credit. There's, it's impossible to have extra credit in the Christian life. Can't be done. Extra beyond what? Beyond what he commanded you to do? Can't be. Anything beyond what he told you to do is disobedience. So fundamentally, there is no extra credit, and you cannot, that whole system of justification by works falls apart on that very point. There is no extra credit. Just if perchance today you actually did obey, all you did is for once did what you were supposed to do. That's it. So obeying obedience. Now here's a deeper question. It says, whether slaves to sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to what? That's problematic. Whose obedience is he talking about in verse 16? Whose obedience is in view? Ours. The Christian's obedience. So our own obedience leads to what? Righteousness. That should cause you to stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we were done with that. I thought we moved out of that. How do we understand that? Well, if we, if we, how do we understand it? Uh, if we look at uh, Romans 7, 7, or sorry, not Romans 7, 7, but um, look at, uh, let's see, uh, Galatians 22, uh, sorry, Galatians 3, 22. Okay. Uh, oh, no, sorry, 25. But after faith has come, we are no longer under tutor, that, oh, sorry, 24. Therefore, the law has, was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Mm -hmm. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Okay. Good. That's, so tell me more about that. So if we don't understand what sin is, what sin is transgression of the law, and the law being the tutor to bring us to Christ. So if we don't know what we're doing wrong, we can't fix it. Okay, so the law shows us what a righteous life is. All right? And we can't do it if we're with God. Okay. Now here's my problem with the verse. And I think it's good to have problems, initial problems, and then solve them. 
All right, don't leave there being problems with the scripture. That's on you. Okay, the scripture's already fine. It's perfect. You don't understand that's on you. But here's, here's the problem I have. This seems to be leading us back to a works righteousness, right? I mean, it seems to be overtly teaching a works righteousness. Our obedience leads to righteousness. But we need to understand, as Luther point, pointed out centuries ago, there are two kinds of righteousness. There is the imputed righteousness given to us as a gift, a perfected righteousness worked by Jesus' obedience to the law that is given to us instantly at, at faith, at the moment of faith, justification instantly, the law having brought us uh, to Christ, and we are instantly positionally seen to be righteous. Is that the righteousness this verse has in view? No. no. This is a different kind of righteousness. What is that? An actual, practical righteousness that is worked out in my life, in my thoughts and in my behavior, that's imitating Christ, though imperfectly. That's what's in view in this whole chapter. That second kind of righteousness, and that's what he has in mind here. We already have the first one. And on the basis of our perfect standing in Christ, we then work out our salvation with fear and trembling to grow in actual righteousness. And how do you get to an actual practical righteousness that imitates Jesus? This verse tells you, obey. That's how you do it. You obey. The more obedient you are, the more righteous you're going to get. That's what the verse is teaching. It's a progressive growth in practical righteousness through our own obedience. But it's not unaided. It is God who works that obedience in us by His Spirit. He's always ahead of us by the Spirit. It is by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, that we are beautifully righteous and virtuous in God's sight. So the Spirit is working in us, but we work too. And it is by our, our part is obe obedience, just in this verse. Verse 616 is... All right, and then we get to that beautiful verse 17, which I already said. Um, somebody read it. I love 17. It's just a great, great verse. Yeah, please, 617. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Beautiful verse. I commented on it last time, um, and the sermon title I wrote for this uh, section of Scripture uh, kind of boiled it all down to a simple, simple phrase. Thank God you obeyed. Thank God you obeyed. Now, why would that cause your brain to freak out, especially if you're a major free will person? All right. <laughs> why, would, why is that like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Thank God you obeyed. What does that teach you about who Paul thinks should get ultimate credit for your obedience? God should get it. God deserves credit for your obedience. Now, why would that be a little odd? The more you're like, oh, I don't know, that's kind of interesting. God deserves credit for my obedience to the gospel. That's what he's talking about. Because we're led to, we're, because when something happens around you that, as Christian that you know shouldn't be going on, you get grief and spirit. Yeah. So it's kind of part of the fruit of it, of being a believer. It's something God works in us, all right? So this one verse says, we used to be what? Slaves to sin. We had invisible chains around us we could not break. We couldn't break them. But then Jesus, Jesus said this, that everyone who sins is, is, is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So then Jesus set you free. Free to what? Well, it's just like, uh, and can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound, securely bound in sin and nature's night, Thine being Jesus, thine eye diffused or gave out a quickening ray. Quickening mean gave me life. A quickening ray of light. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. All right. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I, in, the, in these, uh, the, the terms here, I obeyed you. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I got up and followed the gospel. But all that other stuff that happened before that, Jesus did that, right? I was in a dark dungeon in chains I couldn't break, and I didn't even know I was in a dark dungeon with chains on. I didn't even know that. But then you came in and did all that, and the chains fell off, and I was al alive and awake, and I got up and walked out of the jail cell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for my salvation. You should give full credit to Jesus for your faith, your obedience, your repentance, all of the graces that have been worked in you, give him the credit. That's what I get out of the verse, verse 17. It's pretty powerful. Thank God you obeyed. Yeah, go ahead. 
a good cross-reference be First Corinthians fifteen ten? I, I'm sure it is. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Whatever it teaches. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. There are a lot of ways to get at the same thing. Another is everyone who, who hates the light will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he did has been done through God. Every good thing he ever did, God did it. Or Isaiah puts it this way, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. That kind of sums it up. So yeah, that's that casting crowns image, whatever. F- give him full credit, give him full glory for everything. Go ahead, JP. Brother Andy, if you could say something about, in verse 17, it seems like there is a relationship between adhering to teaching mm-hmm. and disobedience that you've been talking about. Yeah, what is it we're obeying? I mean, honestly, the, the fundamental obedience in 617 is the gospel. The gospel has a fundamental command, a dual command. The time is at hand, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe. Those are commands, right? So that gospel, that basic obedience was committed to us in the word of God. Evangelists, missionaries, pastors, teachers, if they're good, if they're righteous, they were teaching you the Bible. They were teaching you the word of God. Might have been on a tract, might have been right up out of a Bible, might have been that they had it memorized. But they are teaching you the Bible. Yes, it is the Bible you obeyed. But that's just the first time you obeyed it, right? Now what? Lots and lots more to obey. How much is there to obey? Lots. There's a lot to obey in the 66 books of the Bible. You just started obeying. But thank God you began obeying, and now you got more obeying to do. That's what he's getting at. Very, very good point. All right, let's keep going. Um, Foreign teaching and trust. All right. Emancipation from sin. Let's talk about that. We were slaves to sin. We are now set free from that bondage and are now slaves of God and of Christ. This is fundamental. Verse 18, consider the greatness of this assertion. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. All right, if you're a Christian, that's true of you. You're set free from sin. Does that mean that you never need sin again? You never need to sin again? Um, Well, you don't need to. That's what I'm asking. I didn't say you will never sin again. We'll get to that in chapter 7. Yes, sadly you will. But you didn't need to. Paul's going to confess his own sin in chapter 7, isn't he? The very thing I hate, I do. If you ask him about that, you circle that with a red pen and say, but did you have to do it? What do you think he would say? Look, I already covered that. No, I already covered. And then you could say, well, Paul, why do you do it then? He's going to say, I don't know. That is going to be his official final answer. I don't understand what I do. What does that mean when he says, I don't understand? Is I cannot give you an explanation. And he's going to say at the end of this chapter, what fruit or benefit did you ever get from sin? What did it ever do for you? It doesn't lead to anything good. It's poisonous. It's destructive in every respect. And, the, and, and now we're being told here in verse 18 and verse 22, you're set free from it. You don't ever need to do it again. Then why do you do it? Simple word, insanity. Or stupidity or whatever. I mean, we're just stupid. It's true. We are foolish sheep. Foolish, stupid sheep when we sin. That's just the stupidest thing we do. There is nothing rational about it. By the way, I I had a great meditation on this when I was writing my book on heaven. I was in the chapter on suffering. And the question always on suffering, the people always, when they're suffering, when they're suffering, they always want to ask God one question. It's always the same. What is it? Why? Why? Do you think he has a reason for it? Oh, yes. Do you think he wants to tell you the reason? Not here, but I do believe in heaven he'll explain it. I do believe that. But then let's turn the other way around. Didn't Nathan the prophet ask David why? Why did you do this? I gave you this. I gave you that. I took you from the sea. And and then why did you sleep with another man's wife and bring contempt on Israel? Why did you do this? What answer will David be able to give in heaven? There is none. There is none. There will not be one in heaven. You won't have a good answer then either. And what does that do? You're going to contrast the perfect reasonableness or rationality of everything God ever did with the perfect irrationality and insanity 
and unreasonableness of evil and sin. And you'll get to see them side by side. The very thing we wanted. We wanted to know good and evil. And good is essentially rational and reasonable and orderly. And sin, evil, is essentially destructive, irrational, disorderly. We're going to see that in heaven. Anyway, let's keep going. We have been set free from sin. And this is a powerful thing. You should say this. We've already been told, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Count yourself free from sin. However you want to say it, it's the same thing. If I'm dead to sin and alive to God, if I'm free from sin, you're saying the same thing in different words. I don't need to sin today. I don't need to sin today. I don't need to sin in those specific ways today. It doesn't matter how habitual those sins have been in my life up to this point. It does not matter. I am set free. I don't need to sin today. I can, I can say no to every temptation that comes my way. We must, we're actually commanded to tell that to ourselves, to consider ourselves that way. Because it's from that confidence, that basis, that we fight sin in every area. It's very, very powerful. We've been set free. And it's repeated in slightly different uh, firm, uh, form in verse 22. You have been set free from sin. That's identical. And it becomes slaves to God. Now, verse 18 says you, you're slaves to righteousness. Verse 22, slaves to God. Would you call this a contradiction? <laughs> Is this a contradiction? See, there's clear contradictions in the Bible right here. Well, how would you harmonize this? Verse 18 and 22. What do, are, we set, are we slaves to righteousness or are we slaves to God? How do we understand that? Yes. yes. All right. But okay. Okay. So to be a slave to God is to be a slave to righteousness. Now, righteousness, like glory, is one of those words you hear all the time, but it's hard to define. But it's that which lines up with the character and nature of God. It, it just kind of uses the word to, to define the word, to say it's what is right. But you could imagine like a right angle or, or a right or accurate ruler or something. It's just what lines up with truth, what lines up with what is and should be. That's righteousness. It's not easy to define, but that's what we mean. We've become slaves to doing things the right way. We've become slaves to doing things the way God commanded. That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. Now, no one was more that way than Jesus. Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Everything he did, he did for righteousness' sake. I mean, remember how John the Baptist didn't want to baptize him? Remember that? He said, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Do you remember what, what answer Jesus gave? It is right for us. It, yeah, we must fulfill all righteousness. If I'm John, I'm like, Okay, I'll baptize. I don't know what that means, but you know, <laughs> what does that mean? When it comes to Jesus being water baptized, we must fulfill all righteousness. Well, let's take the baptism off the table. Go ahead. I'm sorry. All what, things that are right. Anything that's right. Okay. So uh, what do you think Jesus means by we must fulfill all righteousness? It is God's will. Okay. Do you think that Jesus knew that the Father wanted him to be water baptized by John the Baptist? Yeah, Jesus always knew what the Father wanted him to do. So righteousness is whatever God wants you to do. And he fulfilled it by doing it. So that's a beautiful picture. All right, let's keep going. We've talked about the yoke. Jesus' yoke is on you if you're a Christian. He expects you to obey him. His yoke is on your neck. You know how over and over in the Old Testament, the Jews were called stiff-necked with uncircumcised hearts. What does that mean to be stiff-necked? I think fundamentally disobedient. You won't put your neck. Stubborn, defiant. Was that Israel? Sadly, yes. Not all of them. There were, there were some godly men and women. But generally the nation, I mean, that's what I'm getting out of Ezekiel. It's just, it's really worse than I ever thought it was. And they are, were a stiff-necked people. They wouldn't yield to him. By the way, I do believe that stiff neck and hard-hearted are synonyms. They're just different metaphors for the same thing. It's an unyieldedness to God. So Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And so take my yoke upon you. I would say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am hum gentle and humble in heart. What are we supposed to learn? Well whatever he wants to teach us. But fundamentally, learn how to submit to the will of God. No one did it better than Jesus. Learn how to yield to God. As you yield to me, 
I yield to God. That's the righteousness, the redemption that, that I'm working here. I would suggest you could and should pray Matthew 11:28 28 through 30 every day. Every day. Say, Lord, I'm coming to you now. I'm coming to you now. I am weary and burdened. Do you feel that? It's like, no, I'm done. Now I'm a Christian. I don't feel weary and burdened. Yes, you do. All right, so you're, Jesus said, all right, are you feeling weary and burdened? Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, another translation here, and I will give you rest. He tells us that. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Why could, could or should you do that every day? Take my yoke upon you today. What would that mean for today? Let's say you have a morning quiet time, 6.30 in the morning. Take my yoke upon you. Absolutely. I think it means submit to my kingly rule, submit to me, bow the knee to me, yield to me, obey me in detail. That's what I think I get out of that. Uh, take my yoke and learn from me. Yeah, Rick, go ahead, brother. Uh, sometimes it's just very, very difficult to obey for one reason or another. And the consequences of obedience don't necessarily seem that great sometimes. How do you reconcile, I will give you rest with that when you confront that situation? Uh, well, it's a deep question. Sometimes to answer questions like that, I try, I reverse things. The opposite of rest is restlessness. Do you not see that in evil? Don't you see that in Satan and demons? And don't we get like that when we're sinning? We're restless, we're restless and agitated and annoyed and irritated. Conversely, when you're in the center of God's will, you're at peace. There's a sense of peace. Even if you're being persecuted, like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, I, I see rest in them. They're more at rest than the Philippian jailer was before his conversion. So I would say the rest I will find is in submitting to his will and doing what... It's when I resist and fight him that I find myself restless. So that would be one way I would answer that, Rick. Go ahead. I think one way I'd answer that too is the, the rest we think we're experiencing uh-huh. is nowhere deep as rest as the rest we will experience if we're, if we're obeying Christ. Amen. It's a deep... We think we're we think we're enjoying the life. We don't. It's like C.S. Lewis said: they don't. You know, they they're playing with hovering around in the mud, and they don't know anything about the vacation of the sea. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of beautiful things we can do with gentle and humble in heart. But one of the things I get out of this, and as we were teaching tonight, as we we're looking at this, is that we should be like him. That when it comes to the yoke, be gentle and humble in heart. Don't be uppity and reviling and angry and fractious. Be yourself like Jesus was, gentle and humble in heart. Take the yoke upon you, uh, follow his ways, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's what he's getting at. Yeah, go ahead. In Hebrews 5, 7 mm-hmm. through 10, I mean, those are pretty challenging verses, and it really challenged me in my life about Jesus that during his days on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, not to the cross, with right. fervent cries and tears to the one who was saved from death, that Jesus spent time in tears and crying and prayer and petition. What's the next thing it says? And then it keeps going. It says, and he, he was heard because of his reverent submission. submission. Yeah. But I think sometimes we think that submission and that yoke is going to be easy, yeah. it's going to be light. So when you say, you look at Hebrews, he was heard because of his reverent submission to who? To God. Right. And that's what Jesus is bringing us to. Reverently submit to God. That's what this whole teaching is. Thank you. Beautiful. Absolutely. That's the beautiful thing about the yoke, though, is it's a symbol of productivity. I mean, we, don't, we tend to think of it as a burden, but mm-hmm. you know, a team with the yoke plots a field, they make food. I mean, if you're obedient to God, you get to see the blessings of God and all the things that he creates. All right, I have a fantasy going through my mind here of finishing Romans 6 tonight. <laughs> I really do. So let's try. Let's just try. Romans six nineteen. The process of sanctification, gradual transformation by habitual obedience to a master. Verse 19, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural self, selves. 
just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. This is an absolutely essential verse for us understanding progressive sanctification. After apologizing for using the slavery analogy, I put this in human terms because you need such simple analogies to understand what I'm saying. That's basically what he's saying, all right? Paul then gives a fundamental command that results in sanctification. He uses an analogy, a just as, so also. He's comparing two things. Interestingly, he's comparing our old life of rebellion and wickedness and sin to our new life of obedience to, to God. He's comparing uh, those two. All right? He uses the principle from the old life and he applies it to the new, new life. And what is that principle? The principle is one of presentation of the members of the body to a master, resulting in, secondly, an ever-growing character and lifestyle. That's what he's comparing. You used to do that and look what it did. Now do the same thing, only to a better master. It's very interesting. He's taking a, a kind of a feature of the human life that actually is continuous. And that is that we're shaped by our habits. We're shaped by what we do again and again and again and again. So that's why I argue for habitual obedience in infinite journey. So it's got to do with again and again. So that's what I see. Do you guys see that? The, the things you're being compared are the presentation of the members of the body to a master resulting in an ever transforming and developing character and lifestyle. That's what he's comparing. All right. I think verse 19 may be the clearest progressive sanctification verse in the Bible. Why is that? Because of the very end of the verse. Or, or uh, sorry, holiness or, yeah, ever-increasing wickedness, um, righteousness leading to holiness. So it's a destination you haven't arrived at yet. You're going after a righteousness you don't have. It's called holiness here, but it could be called sanctification. Some translations do use the word sanctification. Um, but that's progressive. It's, it's ever-increasing versus ever-increasing. And so we are therefore to be holier a year from now than we are right now. We're supposed to be much holier five years from now than we are now. That's the implication here. It's not guaranteed, but that's what should be happening. Does that make sense? So this is that progressive um, aspect, presentation leading in ever-increasing holiness, etc. It happens by the habitual presentation of the members of the body to the new master, God slash Christ slash righteousness, different ways of looking at that all of the above. So you present yourself and your members, even in detail, to God to serve. And you'll grow. You'll grow in holiness. That's what he's saying. Now let's finish. Uh, 20 through 23. Now when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit or fruit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul reasons with us based on the analogy that he's made. Our old pattern of presenting our members to our old master sin versus our similar new pattern of presenting our members to our new master, God or Christ or righteousness. At that time, goodness never intruded on the old lifestyle. He said, remember back in those days? You never did goodness. So why are you doing evil now? That's not fair. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Back in those days, you were free from the control of righteousness. You see that in verse 20? What's he saying there? Back when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the dominion of righteousness. Wouldn't righteousness make claims on you? Did you heed them? What's Paul implying here in verse 20? You didn't obey them. All right? He's saying, well, then now you should turn around and return the favor. Now that wickedness, now that you're a slave to righteousness and it's sending out signals to you called temptations, don't listen. Act the same way, only now for righteousness' sake. That's what he's getting at. At that time, goodness never intruded on that old lifestyle. You were free from the control of righteousness. It made no demands on you uh, that you heeded in the least. So now you should return the favor. Don't heed sin and wickedness because the outcome, the benefit, the fruit, uh, the harvest was death. He argues then from the fruit, the return on the investment. What benefit or fruit or harvest or return on the investment did you ever get from sin? What good did it ever do you? Can you think now, Paul's saying, think of your life, your career in sin. 
Think about it, all right? Did it ever do anything good for you? Say, uh, I would say, that's the one thing I'm glad I did. The implication, again, is no, all right? There is nothing good that comes from it. Now, I have some things in here about uh, adultery, uh, you know, in Proverbs 5, you have a warning against, the, against adultery. The same thing in Proverbs 6, and again in Proverbs 7, there's a whole parable concerning a young man that gets seduced and led into adultery. And uh, you know how, remember in, in Proverbs 7, when he finally yields to her, her uh, uh, seduction and goes in, he says suddenly he goes in with her, little knowing it'll cost him his life. He's not thinking, this will cost me my life. This will kill me. He doesn't think that. Now, that's what makes sin essentially deceptive. There, th this is what, why sin is, is a deceiver. It lies to us. Could someone read Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 right off the handout here? See to it, brothers, that you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what does that phrase mean to you, sin's deceitfulness? Like the false promise is that it rests yeah. for enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, in Proverbs 7, the seductress promises him lots of good specific things in that chapter. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, I won't go through it, but she's seducing him with the benefits, what kind of time they're going to have, right? So in this sense, it, you know, sexual sin is one of the most potent and the one of the most common and famous, but it really could be a metaphor for all seduction, all tempting. It's promising you something that it will not deliver. So you get all that boiled down to the one phrase, sin's deceitfulness. It is lying to you. Sin is lying to you. And so Paul's saying, what fruit did you ever get from it? Those things result in death. That's what he's talking about, deceitful desires in, in Ephesians 4.22. So that it never did uh, anything good for you. The wages of sin, he's going to say, is death. Now notice, and I talked about this in my sermon on shame. Remember recently I preached a whole sermon on one verse, um, Mark 8.38 which is, um, you know, where he says, if anyone's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed? One of the points I made in that sermon is that Christians ought to be ashamed and are. You remember that? And I, I said that that is controversial for some people. Some people think we leave shame behind when we become Christians. Well, I understand that. You will definitely leave shame behind beyond Judgment Day. When you go to heaven, you won't be shame, ashamed ever again. Never again. No shame in heaven. Will there be shame on Judgment Day? <laughs> yes, I think so. I think there will be pain on Judgment Day. What do you think it will be like to give Jesus an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad? What do you think that will feel like? I can't imagine there wouldn't be final feelings of pain and regret. Paul says, if what you have built, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw, if what you have built is burned up, you're, you'll suffer loss. So, but that's all on Judgment Day, I think. That's a difficult day, but a good day, too, because you also get your first rewards and your first sense of Jesus' pleasure in your good works. It's a very mixed day, because you, you led a mixed life. If you didn't lead a mixed life, then it'll be a great day for you. All right? <laughs> but if, if you don't have anything to say except just good things, but he's going to ask you about everything. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know that I want to give him an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. You don't have a choice. Everything he, he gave you was a stewardship matter. He's going to ask for an account. These are consistent teachings. He, the, the master asks for an account for your money, your time, your gifts, your abilities, everything. Just an account. Give him an account. Anyway, so verse 21, though, is, a clear, is clear testimony that shame should be part of the Christian life. Do you see it? Somebody read verse 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Do you, yeah, just a second. Do you think Paul there is writing to Christians or non-Christians? All right. Does he not say, now ashamed? What do those two words mean to you? That Christians should now be ashamed of the things they used to do. But there was a transformation somewhere along the way. That's true. And that transformation we'll talk about in the next chapter, later tonight. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But anyway, yeah, I mean, 
there is. It's no longer I who do it. I'm not the one sinning anymore. That's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. However, we did do it. I'm telling you, what I said in that sermon is the shame does you good. You need it. You won't need it in heaven, but you need it now. Why do you need it now? So you won't do it again. You won't do it again. So there is that sense, and verse 21 clearly proves there is, there, you know, nothing good came from it. Those things you are now ashamed. Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit or the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So what fruit comes from obedience? Much in every way. Much in every way. Uh, I heard a preacher years ago uh, take fruit and, and put it in two categories, attitude fruit and action fruit. I think it's helpful. What would be examples of attitude fruit in the Christian life? Fruit of the Spirit, those internal beautiful virtues, to have loving feelings toward, for a husband to have loving feelings toward his wife is fruit, fruit of the gospel. For people to have loving feelings toward lost people and share the gospel with them, that's fruit, all right? But before the sharing, all right, so... Attitude fruit is internal heart dispositions. Contentment, Christian contentment is fruit, isn't it? To learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. Attitude fruit. All right, what's, a, what's action fruit? Good works. Good works. Any good work God told you to do. So if, he told, if you say, all right, based on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to go into room, my room and close the door and pray to my father's unseen. We're commanded to do it. That's a good work, all right? So you're obeying your obedience, and it leads to the fruit of, of a good prayer time, all right? Those are even preordained. They're pre preordained. You know what's amazing, though, is that God will reward you for every good work you do. Amen. Think about that. Every good work. That's what it means to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. What are you storing up but good works? You're certainly not storing up Jesus' imputed righteousness. That's perfect and worth infinite value, given to you instantly. That's not what you're storing up little by little. What you're storing up, good works that lead to rewards. And what are the rewards? What are the C's? I never remember. Crowns, commendation, and capacity. That's what the rewards are. That's what you get. Crowns, emblems of your service that are unique to you. The very thing you said we're casting before we give him, but there's still hours to cast. All right? Commendation, what's that? Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Not just once, but for all eternity. God saying, enter into the joy of your master. God letting you know how much joy he derived as your father, your heavenly father, for the good things you did as a pleasing son or daughter. He'll let you in on that. He'll tell you it was pleasing to him. Not just once, but forever. And then what about capacity? That's the hardest to understand. But Jesus said the measure you use is the measure you'll receive. All right? What are you receiving? Heavenly glory? Ultimately, you, I, I, the way I look at rewards ultimately is what he said uh, to Abram in Genesis 15. He said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. God is the reward. Are there unequal levels of reward in the Christian life? There must be. There are unequal Christian lives. So wouldn't it be cool if how you live increases your capacity for God in heaven? So that's the best of all, that I will have a greater sense of God in heaven because I lived a certain kind of life. I don't know what else to get out of the measure you use is the measure you'll receive. Use a little measure, you get a little back. Use a big measure, you get a big measure back. Do you think Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus, Jesus is primarily speaking about this life or the next life when he says the measure you use is the measure you'll receive? Both. Both? I said primarily, though. No, primarily. Um, future. All right, when you have a banquet, when you have a banquet, do not invite all your wealthy friends. Why? Jesus said. Because they're just going to invite you back and you'll be repaid. But instead, when you have a banquet, invite the poor and the needy and the, and the outsiders and all that. Though they cannot repay you, listen to this, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Whoa, what does that phrase mean to you? Repaid at the resurrection of the righteous.
Consummation. That's reward. Heavenly rewards. So the measure you use is the measure you'll receive ultimately in heaven. Other than that, you're heading right toward prosperity gospel teaching, and I wouldn't go there if I were you, all right? If you give a faith promise to First Baptist Church, all right, we can promise tenfold back. We're not doing that teaching, all right? That's not what we're talking about. Go ahead. There was that one time that you said you will give some rewards on earth and along the persecution. Yeah, we get, we get benefits now, but I really look at the benefits we get from our good works now as foretaste given us by the Holy Spirit. He gives you little feelings of pleasure, a little sense of God's pleasure now, and you can just feed off it, but it's not the real reward. The real reward is hearing it right from God himself. Okay. Yeah, that's right. All right, so final verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. One of the famous Romans road, um, and uh, fundamentally comparing the two outcomes. If you live a life of slavery to sin, it leads to death, eternal death. That's the wages. That's what you get. But not wages, but gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I consider Romans 6 to be done. Okay, so next week we'll pick up on Romans 7. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.